0: Right. And this is to advance. Oh. oh, that one? Okay. Okay. I don't have a screen yet. Okay. okay. Pitch up and down? Okay. Okay. Great, thank you. <clears throat> All right. Well, good morning. And uh, let's see, a particular thank you to George, where, I'm not sure where he went now, but uh, always very nuanced. There you are. Always very nuanced and helpful. Appreciate it. Uh, some of you are holding your ears. Can you not hear me? Is there a way to turn it up a little bit, or? Closer to, closer to the mic. Okay, I'm pretty close He's now. Well, that's starting to pick up. Okay. Uh, Technology is great when it works. Um, Dr. Mark Bodo, one of my colleagues, uh, was showing me his new MacBook Pro a few weeks ago when he was a little bit too vigorous. He knocked a tall cup of coffee next to the keyboard. It spilled across and it was gone. Technology is great when it works. Uh, But I am going to move this. Okay. Also, I had very carefully prepared a presentation for this particular group on this memory stick, and apparently it didn't register properly. So I'm going to have to use a uh, set of slides that is a little bit older, but I think will serve our purpose. Again, technology is great uh, when it works. It's not always terribly cooperative. Uh, One of the technologies that we face before us now in various forms is uh, that set that makes it possible to, in some ways, change human nature. And so I'm going to uh, raise some issues and major concepts in that regard this morning. But we have just enough time that I'll think of this as an invitation. That uh, hopefully it'll trigger some questions or ideas. I'm really not moving, but the sound's going in and out. Does Is there anybody here who can correct that? Okay. Okay. Well, I'll just... I'm I'm sorry if it's going in and out. and uh, I can't change that. Okay. Nature is constantly changing, uh, constantly moving around us. If you recognize this particular uh, mountain, it's Mount St. Helens, which in a matter of minutes uh, came to look like this. It changed the course of a river. It established a new lake, which is still there to this day. Uh, It leveled timber for tens of squares of miles. If you look down in the bottom... Uh, corner. There are actually a couple of people standing there to give you some scale. You can see, I'm not tethered in. They're all the way down there. If that gives you a sense, uh, massive and amazing level of change. Here's a scene from from quite some miles away, and then just a few years later, uh, you can already start to see the trees uh, coming back quite substantially. Nature is constantly changing. And in fact, it's our nature to change nature. Uh, if uh, mo- not, Most of us don't live on a tropical island where we can have enough food to eat and shelter. Uh, everything is about what we need to survive. Rather, as soon as we start to sharpen a stick to catch a fish or we start to roast it over the fire or we pile up some palm fronds as a roof, we're starting to change nature change our environment, our setting. That's natural to human beings. It's necessary to us. Now, I don't say that to be anthropocentric, uh, to say as if uh, nature exists just for us. What I want to advocate is that we be theocentric, that really the material universe as we know it is God's gift and creation and its ultimate source and purpose. Uh, We want to be theocentric in our attitude and provision, our understanding that God is at the center of all that is. In fact, this is the motto in Greek, at the secular university where I teach with about 25,000 students, run by the province of Ontario. I think most of the faculty and students don't realize what's there at the center of the crest. The founders had written uh, from Colossians chapter 1 that it is in all things Christ who holds it together, that all things hold together in Christ. Uh, That at the founding of that Divinity College and then university, was an expectation that all fields of knowledge that are indeed true, all truth is God's truth, uh, fit together ultimately in being God centered and being Christ centered in what indeed God is doing. So the world is not God, but this is God's world. Uh, in fact, this uh, classic text was pointed out to me by Cal DeWitt at an uh, ASA convention, well, maybe about, maybe even 20 years ago where he emphasized, do you notice in John 3.16, it doesn't say, for God so loved people that he gave his only son. It says that for God so loved ha cosmos, the world, the whole creation, that he gave his only begotten son. That it's right in the center of our tradition that God has given us this world and cares about this world. It's still God's world and that God has a plan for all of it. That we play a crucial role, but it's not just about us. Now, part of that role that God created for us is that we're to be created in his image. Now, this has a long history of how it's been understood. Uh, I'm going to suggest three ways that we might particularly consider that the imago Dei, the image of God, consists of capacity, Uh, that we have unique abilities uh, that make it possible for us to know God and to carry out a particular mandate that other fellow creatures are not able to do. So we have a unique capacity. We have a unique capacity that is an emergent phenomenon, Uh, and we can come back and talk more about emergence if you like, but it's one thing to be able to sense the difference between light and dark. It's another thing to be able to make out actual images. It's another thing to go on to create images. It's another thing to paint like a Monet. Uh, There are quantitative steps from one to the next but there are qualitative differences as you have emergent phenomena at level of complexity, as you go up to higher and higher levels of complexity, so that uh, capacities that we might have things in common with other creatures come to an emergent level of complexity that actually makes possible things that other levels of creatures uh, could never possibly achieve. So human beings have connection with all the rest of creation, which is on a quantitative line of addition, but there are qualitative distinctions about what human beings can do from emergent phenomena. Human beings are also unique in having a relationship with God. Uh, the way uh, John Calvin talked about this was he said that the image of God is like a mirror. A mirror can only reflect that which is, it is in relationship with. That we reflect God's image because of our relationship with God. And that God has given us a particular mandate, a particular calling to represent Him in this wider creation and to serve and follow and glorify and enjoy and to know Him. Now, keeping this in mind, Genesis speaks of God placing human beings in a garden, not a wilderness. A garden requires choices. If you're going to garden, you have to decide if you're going to encourage the roses or the aphids you're not going to be able to encourage both. It's the nature of a garden that we make these choices. It's still God's garden. But we do have a mandate to till and to keep the garden. Now, sometimes people take this as to uh, rend or put to our own use. Actually, to till uh, has much more the sense of to serve, uh, as well as to keep. For example, in the ironic blessing, may the good Lord bless and keep you, it's to till and keep you. It's an idea of service, of stewardship, of care. So what is does not tell us what should be. We are to care for and develop ourselves and the rest of creation. This is part of our mandate and call to tend the garden that's been entrusted to us. Now think of the central key example of Jesus Christ. Uh, we read in Mark chapter six, verse three, what did Jesus spend most of his earthly life doing? Well, until he was the age of 30, he was the town builder. He was transforming the natural world for the service of God and people. Uh, And he teaches directly, for example, in Matthew. uh, In Matthew chapter 24, he says that he will return. In Matthew chapter 25, he answers three key questions. The disciples wanted to know, if you're going to return, how soon will that be? And Jesus' response was, with the story of the ten maidens uh, and their lamps that go out, you all remember, uh, was that it might be quite a long time. You must be prepared to endure. And then that raised the question, well, what should we be doing in the meantime? And Jesus then tells the story of the talents, uh, the uh, money which is entrusted to certain servants, and when he comes back, he expects that they have multiplied it. And that raises a natural question, well, what would count as multiplication? And that's when Jesus tells Uh, The story of the last day of judgment, where the way you could recognize who were his people were the ones who fed the hungry, who gave water to the thirsty, uh, the people who clothed those who had no clothes, the ones who healed the sick, who visited those in prison, that uh, we have uh, resources entrusted to us that we are to augment, to build, and to extend out of love for God and neighbor. Now, do you notice in Matthew 25 that praise was for those who were prepared for the long haul, who multiplied and trusted resources, and who cared for their neighbors? And indeed, that's part of our calling as well, to sustain, restore, and improve this world that God has entrusted to us. Now, that raises a question, though. Does that include just the material world that's been given to us, or also our own physical form? Well, let me ask you this. What was the sign mandated to Abraham to show that he and his descendants were people of God? Do you recognize this Ishmael? This is a, a ceremonial knife used for circumcision. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, that every male among you shall be circumcised. What is circumcision? It's the intentional ceremonial cutting off of a normal part of the male human physical body. That right at the heart of how the Jewish tradition and the Old Testament understood uh, that one would show one's allegiance to God and connection with God, that you were part of the people of God, was to actually physically modify the body that had been entrusted. Or I'll give you an example with teeth. My mother told me, and I remembered it uh, for a long time, that if you ignore your teeth, they'll go away. And so uh, I was taught that first I needed to, uh, we talk about sustain, restore, and improve, sustain my teeth by brushing them, have that responsibility. When they would develop a dental carry, a a cavity, I would seek to restore that tooth by filling in the cavity. And then, amazingly, I have uh, twin daughters who are now 19 and have never had a cavity in their life. Wow. The Fluoride in the water and then fluoride treatments actually rendered their teeth almost impervious to cavities so that their teeth are stronger than normal teeth enamel and hence have never had to endure going through having cavities. I would suggest that's an example, very concretely, of sustain, restore, and improve. Or here's a, uh, an example of the speckled monster, a historical tale of battling smallpox, Uh, there are only two places left where smallpox still exists. Uh, One is in Atlanta and the other is in Moscow. Uh, It's at the Centers for Disease Control in deep frozen storage. Smallpox, as best we can tell, has been wiped out from wild smallpox, from the general environment. I would suggest that that's actually an improvement. That it's a a good thing that smallpox no longer exists in the wild. Uh, If you're in this room and you're over 40, you probably have a scar on your shoulder from being immunized against smallpox. If you're under 40, there's a good chance that you don't have that scar. Uh, We don't immunize against it anymore for most people because it's no longer part of our environment. I would argue that's an an example of an improvement, that we can change our environment for the better, as well as for the worse. Now, some people suggest that when we consider uh, using technology, making technology work, uh, as part of our mandate and calling, that we should make the key distinction between cure and enhance. And we can come back to this if you'd like. I'd like to suggest that in practice, this is actually a very difficult distinction to make and not actually that helpful a distinction. Some people say, well, the distinction between serving a person and shaping an artifact, that you shouldn't be involved in human beings because you make them objects. Uh, I'd suggest that actually it can be a point of service, not making an object. And we can come back again to that if you like. Some people say that genetically we can do somatic where you treat just the patient who's presented to you, but you should not change the germline. You should not change that which will be inherited. I'd like to suggest that, for example, if we could not only treat that person standing in front of us who has Huntington's disease, but also keep their children from inheriting it, that actually is a positive and good thing and would be other things considered appropriate to do that germline is not the crucial distinction. Instead, I would like to appeal to some principles, interestingly, that very closely parallel ones that we heard this morning. Um, John Rawls suggested that our society can work around three primary ones, that we have an obligation that we all recognize to non-maleficence, at least don't make the patient worse, primum non nocere, and beneficence, you should try to help, try to make things better. Autonomy, this is not the idea that you make all decisions by yourself. It's rather that we show respect for you, that when something affects you, it's appropriate for you to have a say. That we want to respect your community and your decisions as much as we can. And then fairness, that you treat equals equally. Uh, We see this pattern in many other places. Uh, Beecham and Childress wrote Principles of Biomedical Ethics, it's in many editions by now, many different languages, it's become what some people call, fittingly here, the Georgetown Mantra, uh, that what you ask when you're considering ethics in medical care is non-maleficence, beneficence, autonomy, and justice. Do you notice those are uh, basically the same ones we saw in Rawls? Now, they would argue that this is part of the, of the Western tradition and that it's widely recognized in Eastern traditions as well that all human beings seem to recognize these as things that need to be considered in how we relate to and care for each other. And in fact, uh, one could argue that it's been part of the tradition for over 2,700 years. You can see them in Choit in Micah 6.8. What does God require of you? That you seek justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Seek justice, justice, fairness. Love kindness, that you seek to benefit, be kind to, care for others, that you don't harm them. That's beneficence, non-maleficence. That you walk humbly, that you show respect for other people's concerns and views and considerations. Uh, So I think there's actually a long history why we see these principles coming up again and again. But it is true that they more raise questions than final resolution. Uh, This is the difference that Michael Walzer talks about between thick and thin. Uh, As an abstract question, as a heuristic, they raise things we need to consider and very widely across different traditions they're recognized. But then within your particular conversation or tradition, you need a thick description where you start talking about, well, okay, you should benefit, but what is a benefit? Okay, you shouldn't harm, but what really is a harm? that you need a larger world view and conversation to be more specific and concrete about how you'd actually apply those questions and principles. So applying those very concretely in regard, for example, to genetic intervention as an example of a technology uh, that is great if it works, if we can make it work right, I would suggest that one key question we should ask is, is it safe for the recipient and all others involved? Notice that's a variation, a very concrete example of the principle of primum non nocere, non-maleficence. Don't make the person worse. Is it a genuine improvement? That's necessary if you're applying beneficence. Will this genuinely help or benefit the person who receives it? Does it increase the recipient's choices? That's a concrete way of addressing what principle we had before. Well, Autonomy okay, of respect. Is it the best use of always finite resources? That's the question of fairness or justice. So notice I'm giving some very concrete questions to consider when thinking about the application of a particular technology in a God-serving way out of love for God and neighbor. Now, uh, time is short, and this is actually a presentation from another context, so I will zip through a few of these. Uh, Even perfect genes or any other technological intervention we could make, could never offer us salvation or utopia. But properly used genetic intervention and other technologies can sometimes be another way to help or serve our neighbors. Now, you all know that a herd of cows, or rather a group of cows is a herd, a group of whales is a pod, of crows is a murder, of geese is a gaggle, of prides as a lion, Maybe a group of ethicists is a worry. (laughs) Uh, Ethics serves a very important purpose when it warns us of the dangers of pride. But it should also warn us of the danger of apathy. It tells us what not to do, but it should also remind and encourage us as to what we should do. Do you remember the Matthew 25 we looked at? The people who were welcomed into the kingdom, you could recognize them by what they were doing. But the chapter is just as explicit about the, rep- about the approbation for the people who didn't do what they were able to do, to serve God's kingdom and one another. You see, Christian ethics is neither lawless nor legalist. It's about being set free through and in Christ to live as God created us to live. Uh, Actually, I have since discovered that this particular piece was not written by Oscar Romero, although it says so all over the web and in some published books. Uh, It was written by a fellow named Ken Untener, in honor of Oscar Romero. Uh, And it's actually quite striking. Let's just read it briefly. God's kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's even beyond our comprehension we accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. We plant seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development, add yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. What we do is a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not just our own. So human genetic intervention is a tool that is any tool and other technologies that in many cases can be used to help or harm ourselves, our neighbors, and God's world. So we need to use it prayerfully, thoughtfully, wisely, out of love for God, one another, and the rest of creation that God has entrusted to us. So, again, that's a broad sweep of some perspective and some uh, considerations. Uh, What would be most helpful to you to come back to and to question or comment on or challenge uh, in this brief time we have before us? Okay. Yes, sir. Are there some medical potential developments that you find very worrying? I'm not worried about knee implants, but some things you think are really...